Hi there, this is Laura with Making Contact. Before we start the show, we just want to thank everyone who donated or shared our crowdfunding campaign. Because of you, we surpassed our goal. Yay! You can follow the work of our four storytelling fellows on our website, radioproject.org. While the crowdfunding campaign is over, you can still donate to help keep the fellowship growing. Just go to our site and click on the fellowship page. Now for the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. The sound you're hearing is of a hospital's surgical unit, high in the mountains of the small nation of Lesotho. Like many Southern African countries, Lesotho is racked by HIV. It has the third highest rate of the virus in the world. Almost one in four people are infected. But unlike its neighbors, Lesotho has no medical school. There are only about 100 doctors for a population of 2 million. The few hospitals there are, like this one in Mama Hau, struggle to cope with the sheer number of patients. So to fill the gaps, the health service has turned to non-professionals. Expert patients, or lay counselors as they're known, who are HIV positive themselves. They help doctors reach patients who otherwise would go without treatment. I accompany patients to the clinic. I motivate them to come to the clinic, and I also counsel them back in the village. I also take the weight of the children and encourage the patients to take their medication. This is Malila Mafwa. She's an expert patient at Mama Hao Hospital. I've been able to bring many people to the clinic. I'm very proud of that. It also means that I'm welcomed by the community. I'm seen as a lifesaver. Practices like this one began in Haiti in the 1980s, where there was also a shortage of doctors. Lillian Nawoga is a doctor in Maseru, the capital. Like almost every doctor in Lesotho, she's a foreigner, in her case from Uganda, and she depends on the local expert patients. Really, my job would be a bit difficult without expert patients, because one, I'm not uh, originally from Lesotho, I've learned most of the Sesotho I know from expert patients because they've been translating for me from English to Sesotho and from Sesotho to English. And uh, when we go out in the districts during our outreach visits, we still work with expert patients. And most of the time when I go out to the health centers, by the time I get there, I'll find the expert patient has already taken the weights and heights of patients. He's counted the pills and documented the adherence. So my job is really simplified working with them. Mamakoena Malaka was the first expert patient at the Baylor Clinic in Lesotho's capital, Maseru. After the death of her husband, she found strength in talking about the disease that killed him. I asked them to give the permission to talk to the patient when they are, wait, when they are sitting in the waiting room about HIV and encourage them to be open to the doctor, to tell them everything, what has happened, and encourage them to know their status. I want to talk about HIV because the more I speak about it, is the more I get healed. After I know my status, I think that this is the end of the road. Then I volunteered as a yes, talk to the people, then I get courage. Now I see that I have a good future ahead of me. You know, in Lesotho, it's difficult for the widow woman to have her own house, something like that. But I myself, I have achieved that. And I'm proud of this. 
There are around 600 expert patients in Lesotho, each earning about $75 a month. One of the most important elements in the scheme is trust. Patients are more willing to be honest with people who are also HIV positive because they can relate to their situation. The doctor or the nurse, they are not going to find the truth what is happening because the patient will insist that I always take my meds. But to me, they are going to tell me the truth. Really, I'm getting tired of this. I throw them away. Unfortunately, the expert patient system is facing budget cuts, and although it's working, it may be reduced. Constant Kasonga, a Congolese doctor working in Mamahau Hospital, says it's important to remember that peer support is not enough. Uh, the expert pe- patients, uh, they are utilized more to share their own experience, and they are helpful on that area. But in terms of uh, other aspects of illness, they don't have skills is where the professional counselor is more needed. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. (laughs) Thanks to Peter Geegan and Tom Allen for help collecting audio for that story. Today we're going to hear more about systems of mutual support, where peers coping with similar struggles step into the roles typically filled by licensed specialists. Mutual support can be controversial, especially when it tries to replace professional help. But it can also be immensely rewarding for all parties involved and can save a ton of money. Next up, we're going to hear from our most recent community storytelling fellow, Al Sasser. After spending more than 30 years in prison, Al and his fellow inmates have built a web of support so strong it's helping to keep dozens of men walking free and moving their lives forward. I arrived at um, Old Folsom Prison, 1983, January, in fact. 19 years old, didn't know what prison was about other than what I had saw in the movies, and that gave me the worst case scenario. So I went into this castle-looking, prehistoric, almost medieval-looking building, and that terrified me. The main point was to stay alive. And if that meant that I would end up with more time, then so be it. Exercise, stay as healthy as I possibly can, watch my back, don't trust anybody. That's Al Sasser, Making Contact's most recent community storytelling fellow. He served 31 years for second-degree murder before being released from California State Prison at Solano in September of 2013. In the segment you're about to hear, Al tells the story of how he and a group of 50 men were chosen for a certification program to become drug and alcohol counselors inside the prison. But unexpected by the prison administration, and even subverting their goal of simply saving money, the group formed a brotherhood of sorts, which became a mutual support system, both on the inside and the outside. One would think that it would basically start by the acquiring the literature, showing up at a certain time, meeting at a certain place. However, the initiation for us was this loud boom. So it was like two o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden you hear this noise, this loud bang, boom, you look up. Cameron Clark, we were in different buildings, but he witnessed everything. And there's about 50 to 60 uh, officers in all black 
wrapping people up, going through their property, making sure that they got everything from letters, paperwork, books, and all of these things, and then systematically escorted them out of the building, put them on a bus, and sent them to Pelican Bay Prison. Out of hundreds, 50 were selected to participate in this offenders mentor certification program in which we will become certified with the state alcohol and drug abuse counselors. And later I found out that that was a part of the setup that they would come in and take people that they thought were uh, identifiable gang affiliated people who they felt may prevent this process from happening. And I don't know if you remember at this time, there was making a whole lot of cuts. And the CCPOA at that time was reallocating funds from rehabilitative programs to ensuring that they received a higher wage. You know, so therefore, a lot of our programs and our educational opportunities was cut. I guess the basic idea was we don't need to hire employees from outside and bring them inside the institution and pay them a higher wage with, with uh, insurance and benefits when we can take like-turn prisoners, train them, and have them for a long-term period facilitate these groups. And then here it is, here's these 50 individuals that's about to potentially become counselors. They were coming up to, say, to us saying, you took my friend's job or such and such is not gonna be able to work here anymore because they're about to give you guys the jobs that they once had. One thing that was really on point with that idea was the fact that we relate to each other better than people outside. However, whatever the plan was in terms of the economic strategy to not have to spend more money, what developed from that was that 50 men bonded, supported each other, and developed a relationship that super exceeded their expectations. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, bro, how you doing? Hey, I'm all right. How you doing, big bro? I'm doing good. Give an introduction of yourself. My name is Delray Poole. I'm 46 years old. I've been locked up for right now for 27 years uh, for second-degree murder. I know when we uh, first started the program, you know, I, I know definitely I brought a lot of my old stuff in because I still was a little standoffish, uh, a little mis mistrusting. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. But the help from everybody up in there, you know, and the way we talk, the process groups help. That's that's what opened up, you know, myself, you know, to be able to communicate. You know, yeah, because I was in a shell. You know, I didn't want to talk about the hurt and pain and, and things that I went through. I can make it with just a little bit of soul. We didn't know or realize at the time that we were actually in a therapeutic process and we were counseling each other and that this parallel process was helping each one of us as we spoke the truth of our story and shared our experiences and our pains. We started to develop these relationships, this bond that superseded anyone's expectation. And one of the probably most powerful experiences is, is the relationships that we developed with Big Lou, we call him. 
Mr. Lewis Wright, who at that time was our program director. For me, it wasn't a job. And it was his disposition, his passion, and his love and concern, his teachings, all of which really got our attention and our trust. Normally, within the correction system, we're not to be as, uh, as close with the inmates. They always would say that it would be over-familiarity was a big issue. He and I bonded solely because we were what we call kindred spirits when it came to classical jazz music like Coltrane and Miles. We need to share our burdens and share our fears and share the things that may be tough for us. There's no law against love is what I try to express to everyone. My thing is to try to help you understand that the more love that you express, the more uh, energy that you're going to get and the more uh, righteous you will be living. We came together different cultures. We had Vietnamese, we had Caucasians, we had uh, African Americans, we had uh, Mexicans, uh, Puerto Ricans, we had Portuguese, we had all these different cultures, backgrounds, beliefs, and we came together and we educated each other about our culture to the point where we started to dispel all these myths. We started to eradicate the preconceived notions that we had, and then the more we came together, the more we supported each other. We found out that we had more in common than we had in different. My cousin Ozell Johnson is not just my relative, He's my mentor. You know, even though we came from different walks of life, different paths of life, but they still had the same issue. It's about, man, all of us in pain. We would support each other financially. We would cook food and eat together. We were breaking all the paradigms that were so perpetuated in the prison culture. Slowly but surely, that started to change the culture of the yard, man. It was amazing. We did not allow the threat of death even to prevent us from being friends to each other and that evolving into a brotherhood. First I had to learn how to be honest with myself because uh, most of my friendships and relationships in the past was kind of like negative. Once I learned to love and respect myself and treat myself decent, then I allowed other people to come into my life. When I didn't believe in myself, some other people believed in me and they gave me hope. And despite the fact that we had guards in opposition of us, we had instructors in opposition of us, we had other prisoners in opposition of, to us, we continued to persevere. As I stand here in downtown Oakland, just checking out the scenes, watching people go by, I just really appreciate being free and being able to express myself freely. And in part, that's what this is about. This story that I'm imparting on telling or sharing is a story in which I hope to honor some of the most unrecognized heroes in my life. Men who have assembled together against all odds against an identifiable enemy element which would rather see us die a painfully emotional and psychological death. And still we rise. And as a result, the majority of these 50 men are now out in society being productive and sharing the insight that they've gathered through all this struggle. Here we go.
Here we go, y'all. Check me out. Even before I was born, they had me a spot to rock in a cell block. Even the manufacturers had me a Glock to pop in the exact cop to see me. Chase me down my mama's block, let dog four shots tops. Then get back in the squad car now. Statistically speaking, I was a victim of a system that's paid to profile a young black child because of his dress style. This real shit I spit happened to me in elementary day. Pulled up on the side of me, easily thinking friended me, handed me baseball cards from their squad car. Innocently, I approached and received this gift to me. When aggressively, he grabbed me and asked me, was I a little homie? A homie you what? Do I stay in the house most of the times and stuff? Or is the streets a little too rough when click with his cuffs my first? What the fuck? Asked me if I knew how to throw the hood up. Prison didn't change us. We changed us. Love changed us. Family changed us. The desire to be better, to have better, to think better, to feel better was the motivation for change. Listening is probably the most important part of becoming closer because you can, if you listen well enough, you can hear the heart of that person coming through. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too sure is a lovely day outside today. Sun's out, a lot of trees in Oakland. That's the beautiful thing. It's only been like two years now since I was locked away. Couldn't see past the barbed wire fence and the wall. It's amazing all the sounds that you hear in society when you're free. I think everybody goes through this sensory deprivation when you can find, whether it be in a mental institution or a prison, and you be and the senses are so deprived that you become apathetic if you're not careful. I can tell just how deprived my senses have been. So now I'm in a point of nurturing and really being able to appreciate the variety of colors and sounds and smells, the texture of things. Yes, it's a beautiful world. My name is Al Sasser, and this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. But he winds up knocking me. Al Sasser was our most recent community storytelling fellow. To learn more about the program, check out our website, radioproject.org. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact.
You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. On this week's show, we are exploring the idea of mutual support, situations in which rather than use paid professionals, people facing similar obstacles come together, form their own groups and networks. And we're about to talk about radical mental health. Joining me via Skype is Erica Fletcher, uh, Dr. Erica Fletcher, in fact. She recently finished her dissertation at the University of Texas Medical Branch, and she was studying a group called the Icarus Project. Dr. Fletcher, welcome to Making Contact. Thanks for having me here, Andrew. So what is Icarus, and what do they do? The Icarus Project is a radical mental health community and support network, as well as a media project. They're a group of folks who have had psychiatric diagnoses but choose to define themselves outside of those categories or in addition to those categories. So, for example, there are people who might have depression or bipolar disorder, but they're focused more so on just telling their experiences and listening to the stories of others. And while we're talking today, we're also going to hear some clips from some of the interviews you conducted for your dissertation. And these are all going to be from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, these are members of the Asheville Radical Mental Health Collective. Erica, tell me about these folks in Asheville. The Asheville Radical Mental Health Collective meets weekly, and they're a group of folks who have had psychiatric diagnoses but uh, want to get past that or beyond that by telling stories about their lives and listening to others' stories. The folks from the collective were mostly from a poorer background, and poverty is the largest social determinant of mental health out there in the United States. Okay, let's hear a clip from one of the members of the Astral Radical Mental Health Collective. The collective and Icarus, I think it has really been important to kind of broaden people's uh, views of what might be helpful. And so my therapist told me about that, mainly because he knew that I, there's a lot of times I feel kind of isolated because I don't agree with a lot of the treatment type strategies that agencies do. And so um, I personally see the idea of peer support as being really important. And, and as time goes on, even more important because, uh, I mean, we all have seen like the failure to expand Medicaid and things like that. People are not going to get these services paid for. Even when you have insurance, they want to limit how long you get services before they kind of write you off and don't want to spend money on it. Also, there are people who are very resistant and don't trust the system in various ways for different reasons. Some maybe from delusional thinking and others for very good reasons or a combination of both. So that person we just heard from uh, is saying some of the mistrust of the traditional system is warranted and and some of it maybe not. Yeah, I think it's common that you would find in the collective people who have felt really helped and supported by traditional psychiatric treatments and other people who feel as though they have been overly diagnosed, overly medicated. What's central to this, at least in my mind, is like the idea that like we're we're looking for health, modalities of health, things that promote health, things that promote wellness, that are not centric to medication. They're not medication centric, and I felt that that is very invaluable. It's just such a valuable resource. 
For some people, uh, their definition of health is when they don't have to take psychopharmaceutical medication to feel stable. For others, it is trying to find that special combination of drugs that might make them feel a little bit more stable. And the radical mental health movement is a part of this larger consumer survivor ex-patient movement, which has been going on arguably since the late 70s, early 80s, and onward as people became more and more dissatisfied with uh, traditional modes of psychiatry. Another label that I really hate that doctors use on me a lot is Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-compliant. Yeah. Because I've... um, I've just had real struggles with medication and trying to find the right combination, trying to find something that works for me. And so, you know, I tend to not, not to stay on things that, that are not working. And then I always get labeled non-compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate that label. Like, it's like, it makes you sound like a naughty little child. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly what it does. It yeah. infantilizes yeah. people. And it's like, I'm not not compliant. I'm just like trying to, you know, I'm in this maze and I'm trying to find my way out and I'm trying to find the right key yeah. and please work with me. Yeah. <laughs> You're an adult yeah. tra- expressing yourself in an autonomous <laughs> way say, yeah. and they want to make you a two-year-old. Yeah. You're, you, you've got it right. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah. Consumer. I hate that. That another pisses me off. Like, what do I consume? So drugs? Yeah. I consume drugs. Ooh. Lots and lots of drugs. Why does it piss you off? So uh, you studied this group in Asheville. Uh, you also studied a similar group in Brooklyn. And you spent the better part of a year uh, embedding in the world of radical mental health groups. I, I guess the big question is, uh, are these groups working? Well, Andrew, for me, the question was never not whether they work, because I think there are instances where they work really well in certain encounters and other times where they just fall apart. Um, So my questions were more along the lines of, well, what does it mean in this moment that this is happening right now? And what can we make sense of in this event of people coming together and trying to reach out to each other, trying to connect each other, even when there's so much going against them. What do you get from going to the meetings, I guess? Um, a chance to be heard without being judged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really have any friends. And the ones I have don't want to hear about this stuff. My, my normal, you know, friends are like, Oh, just do this or just do that, or you can apply here or do this or do that. And you have to put that just in there, like it's a decision, like like a, a choice that you can make. And you know, I don't, I, I don't think I've heard that in any of these groups. You know, there are a number of examples in which this model for peer support and mental health has gone mainstream. In Texas, there's peer support specialists, uh, as in North Carolina and several other places, including New York. And these peer support specialists have lived experience with mental illness, diagnoses, and treatment. They're usually folks who have completed a number of hours of training, and they work alongside a team of psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers to talk to people who are going through really difficult times and might experience the effects of poverty on their um, mental stress. The other part of this puzzle is that peer support specialists might sometimes, even while they're doing good work, 
become a band-aid for a larger problem in the lack of access to traditional mental health care forms. And I don't think anyone in the Asheville Radical Mental Health Collective would say, oh, we want to get rid of psychiatry, we want to get rid of community health systems or peer respite systems. Rather, they would say or advocate for a plethora of modalities of treatment and trying to get away from the sole notion that you can pop a pill and feel better or go to a cognitive behavioral therapy treatment center for a couple weeks and fix your problems. Dr. Erica Fletcher is a documentarian, ethnographer, and many other things. We've been listening to recordings she made during her research project on the Icarus Project and the Asheville Radical Mental Health Collective. We will link to her work and more information about Icarus and other groups at our website, radioproject.org. Erica, thanks so much for sharing some of your work and thoughts with us. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the Omnia Foundation for partial funding of this program. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.